Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a Big Five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. Welcome to this week's Publishing Radio, and this week we have with us Julia V, a, a fellow tour author who will be debuting this year, actually, with her co-author Ken, is it Bebel? Is that how I say his name? Yeah, it's Bebel. Bebel. And Julia, in her day job, is kind of on the lawyering side of things, so we were going to talk to her a lot about some really interesting topics to me anyway, like contracts and unions and how they affect us as authors and some things that Julie has done herself as a debut, looking into her own contract. Um, I don't know if you'd like to do your own introduction and talk about your books a bit and your journey, if that's okay. Sure. Um, as you noted, uh, by day, I'm a trial lawyer in Silicon Valley. And um, at night, I like to write fantasy fiction. So I have a co-author, Ken Bebel, and the funny thing about our story is we started writing together when we were 13. Um, now we are like decrepit Gen Xers, right? But uh, we had a long hiatus where we pursued our day jobs and raised our children. And we started writing together again in 2017. So we came from the indie side and um, very unexpectedly in early 2020, we started a novel that when we pitched it, everyone was like, you need to query this. You know, my my mentor, Jonathan Mayberry, was like, have you queried this? You need to query this. And Ken and I didn't know how to do that. So we were like spending a lot of time on Query Shark um, and trying to learn how to write a query letter. And I listened to Henry Lien and he's like, you should query eight to 10 agents a week to like reduce burnout. Um, but end of the day, we queried a total of six agents and had an offer of representation within three months, um, went on submission and sold the book to tour on a pre preempt for six figures for a trilogy within two weeks. Uh, it wasn't exactly Richard Swan, but it was very unexpected for us. And we know we were really lucky. You've invoked the name of Richard. <laughs> I'm sorry, is that why you have that look on your face? I'm sore a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, no. That I mean that that sounds like a fantastic surprise, especially when you got into you know writing and and uh, co-writing sounds like without expectations to go uh, into trade publishing, traditional publishing. I, I mean, I, I I had a I had a somewhat similar path with in terms of the the agent process, finding an agent. I really honed in on a few that I liked and I actually did one at a time and ended up getting the first, but was there any hesitation on the, on the part of the agent or the publishers that you then submitted to in terms of you being a, a duo and uh, how did that work? I guess I'm, I'm interested in that. There was not any of that. I mean, I think our agent asked us, would you like to have one pen name? Kind of like the expanse guys, right? Yeah. Um, James. Corey. But in the end, we just kept our pen names because uh, we had been doing it that way and we were happy to keep going. Mm -hmm. The contract looked a little different from tour, but that was because we formed an LLC. And so it already was going to look different. Got it. So you have in like your articles of incorporation or whatever, how you're splitting any proceeds and responsibilities, I suppose. And tour yeah, just so yeah. we're we're just, there's two of us. And so it's, you know, um, 50, 50 for the two of us and tour treats the entity as the licensor and they call yep. you the proprietor. Yep. So, I mean, with, with the kind of legal background, when you first got the contract from tour, 
I mean, what, how did you find that whole process? Because there's often that long gap where you get the offer and it comes in and then you're sometimes, oftentimes, working on the book before a contract is even signed. I found it utterly foreign. My agent, Lori, bless her, was like warning me, right? She goes, okay, just so you know, I publishing contracts are like their own beast. You know, I, I don't want you to get alarmed when you see this thing. But it does seem very different from uh, the normal course of conduct you may be used to. The preempt came in in February. We didn't get the contract till July. We'd already finished drafting book two at that point in the trilogy, but at least our, you know, zero draft or whatever. But um, I think what startled me is, A, it's like a 40-page contract, and B, your counterpart at the publisher is not an attorney, Right. So they have contracts people, but I don't think the contracts folks are actually uh, IP or entertainment mm. or contracts lawyers. So the, I found that sort of interesting. Our agency was very helpful in navigating sort of these are the things that they had dealt with before and with specifically this publisher. But the contract looked different in 2020. We're in the middle of lockdown, right? But it, it looked different in, uh, I'm sorry, 2021 from even the contracts that we know our friends signed in 2020. So I do think internally they're constantly tweaking their provisions, right, to um, adjust whatever rights it is that they are looking to um, license from creatives. Do you feel comfortable telling us what some of those differences you noticed from 2020 to 2021 were? I can't speak to the people sure. who shared with me about yep. their contracts, but I have become the person where a lot of people share their contracts yeah. with me and um, I'll talk to them about what their provisions mean. So for our contract, Ken and I don't have any hesitations talking about it. It's a, it's a three book deal and it was 50,000 per book and it was joint mm -hmm. accounting. And it was funny because the first advice we got from every single person we talked to was, try to get rid of joint accounting, right? And uh, it was the one thing our editor said, I'm really sorry, I can't budge on this one thing. Um, so that was, I think, kind of eye-opening for us. Additionally, the, the non-compete provision was, in my view, particularly draconian. I think it's drafted in such a way that it's really for like a non-fiction situation, right? Let's say you're the senator of some state and you sell your autobi autobiography to publisher A. Obviously, you don't want to walk down the street to publisher B and sell your autobiographical story again, right? That would be directly competing. Yeah. But I feel like in the world of fiction, the non-compete is an artifact that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, reader behavior is to really like buy an entire backlist, right? And buy anything, multiple versions even, right, of, or even special editions of a book they already own. So the, not, the, the concept that you would be cannibalizing your own sales as a fiction author seems strange yeah. to me. Um, and I'm not even getting into the enforceability <laughs> issue, right? Which yeah. I know, you know, I, I listened to your episode with, with that Robin, and I really admire her. But I think, first of all, these contracts are where the publisher is housed, right? So it's New York law. I'm in California, and um, I'm agreeing to submit to New York jurisdiction when I sign this contract, right? But even in New York, you know, I'm not licensed there, but non-competes in New York still have some elements they have to meet, right? Like they, they're, let's imagine you, you're a competitor in District yeah. A, right? And you, you want to enforce, uh, like an employee, a key personnel member is leaving, and you want to prevent them from opening a shop across the street. Or down the block, right? So geographical limits are actually a factor in enforceability of um, non-competes. We don't have any of that in the, in the author space, right? So instead, they are uh, your agent will try to limit it in terms of like that it's substantially in the same genre, right? Um, mm -hmm. As opposed to limiting you from writing everywhere. But when I first got this contract, it literally limited me from writing anything else, including my legal work, right? Like if you write white papers for, if you're a scientist, if you write, it was just really, really broad, overly so. Um, so most of the work before signing this contract was focused on the non-compete provision for us. Okay. I mean, so I'm just going to quickly say, obviously we're not 
giving people legal advice on the podcast, but I, 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 I'm <laughs> glad you brought up the non-compete because we hear so much conflicting advice from it. And I know the Sullivan's position on it, and I totally see where they're coming from. What, what drives me mad is some other industry professionals will say, no, no, non-competes are definitely enforceable and you shouldn't test the publisher on this. And it's like, okay, but if, but the publishers then turn around and say, well, we never enforce it. So you don't need to worry about it. So you can sign it. So it's like, do you enforce it or do you not? And does it have teeth or does it not? And like, <laughs> everyone says a different thing. And if we don't force it, why do we have it? And if it doesn't. <laughs> I, yeah, I had that exact same forth with them where they said, well, I've never seen the publisher enforce this. And I said, well, that doesn't make me feel any better. <laughs> like, I just want to know what I'm agreeing to. Right. And I don't think anyone should hide the ball. Like, I think it should be really clear between the parties what we think is com a competitive work. And so what I asked for was I said, well, here's a list of the things I'm working on. Do you think any of these would be a problem under this provision? And so I just wanted to have that transparency with my editor. And that was, I thought, productive for us because then they could say, oh, this looks like it might be, this isn't, this is fine. And I could get it excluded. So you modified your contract right. yourself, like, or you submitted things. A lot. That's amazing. I... I redlined that provision um, with what I wanted, and then they came back with their kind of proposals, and we worked to uh, hammer out a final product, right? I mean, a contract is supposed to be negotiated in good faith between two parties. It's hard because I think the level of sophistication between a creative and a big New York City publisher is obviously different, right? Or could be very different. Um, I, I think that if this were even more complicated, I would have hired an entertainment attorney or an IP lawyer to help me because I'm not a copyright lawyer. I just ask questions, right? Like, how does this provision work and what, what is it intended to do? Can I get things excluded that I don't like? Um, and can I ask for more things that I want us to be aware that I might be doing? Chris Rush often says that authors don't plan for their success, right? Mm -hmm. Which means they might not think in the future, what else would I do that might be limited by this contract? Um, so that was the view I went in with. Did you, what did your agent help with that? Because I mean, uh, agents typically do a lot of the contract negotiation. I relied on my agent because I can't read contracts, right? So this tour sent me this 40 page thing. And I think by page five, I was just like, <laughs> in over my head and not really doing um not really understanding i think there were a couple of things i had to ask naomi specifically about that sounded scary as hell and, and were actually very mundane but the rest of it i was just like i don't know how to read this as a lay person yeah that even as an attorney where there were things i did not understand like export rights right or secondary rights and versus prime rights but for for the heavy lifting you know the agent the agency okay. did do the first pass, right? And they did say, these are the things we've been able to get in before. So by the time I got the contract, there were things in bold, mm. which I think is the agency pre-negotiated stuff. I asked the head of the contracts committee at Sifwa if, if that had any role, like if any of these are model provisions. And uh, he said that he did not believe so. So I believe they're agency provisions if you see them in bold on your Oh, contract. can I just stop you there to ask about CIFWA because so that's the science fiction writers association yeah. do you do a lot yes. with them do you interact with them a lot when you're kind of as an author looking at contracts other situations you know i joined them um a couple of years ago and then this year i um volunteered for the contracts committee okay. so i actually didn't know how to get more involved with CIFWA so being a member of the contracts committee has been very helpful and eye-opening as to what members do use the contracts committee for. And they often do send questions through uh, the contracts committee. And I think there's also a, a Discord, right, where people can reach out. So a, a lot of times, I think we want there to be some sort of standardization, right? So you have this, you know, sort of deep-seated need to like want these things to be consistent. But at least for me, and I'm just a you know, a party of one, our situation was totally custom. And I really get the impression as I talk to many authors that each contract is uniquely different for them. So um, in mine, I asked for things like the right to do short fiction in my world. 
to have that excluded as non-competitive. Um, I asked for the right to read things out loud because I didn't want to be stepping on anyone's toes, you know, for audio rights. I just, you know, I had a lot of questions because I couldn't assume these contracts were specific. Now, I know everyone's talking about AI right now, but at the time I was signing this, NFTs were very new. And I told my agent, I said, you know, I, this thing does not expressly call out NFTs, but I could see the publisher making a play later to say that that's included in the mm-hmm. multimedia um, definition. Scott, did you look into your contract at all? Because you're a lot savvier than me at anything business. I've actually been, as we've been talking, I've been, <laughs> I've been looking at my non-compete section. <laughs> yeah, <eight>. because <laughs> I, you know, I, I remembered a few things, but wanted to brush up before I said anything stupid. Well, even more stupid than it uh, might otherwise be. So yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate in that my agent seems to have inserted a whole lot of language um, and, and it might be, you know, a, an agency standard or uh, something that my agent just puts in standard. Um, but yeah, th- there's a lot of language thrown in specifically into uh, the competitive works paragraph in my contract that's actually somewhat contradictory to what the original contract says. So it's almost impossible to decipher whether I, I can or can't do any particular thing other than yeah it, it it basically just says like even sequels prequels are not deemed competing works so yeah i it, it's it's confusing because and, and because it's not clear and i think that's the the case for a lot of authors and i didn't know anything about you know any publisher and in our case tours contracts department but julia you saying that they don't have actual IP lawyers in that department makes Well, no, I mean, just from the front line back and forth, the individual who I was communicating with did not appear to be an attorney. Yeah. That's not to say they don't yeah. have attorneys in there or that they don't work with sure. um, external counsel. Sure. I just found that this preliminary round, I found it interesting that the negotiating was happening between the editor and the contracts. Yeah department, right, and me and my agent. And I think, like you said, it it's pretty apparent that there's some ambiguous and contradictory language in these provisions. Um, so they start with something that might be more boilerplate on their end. And then as each yep. agency starts advocating for their uh, client, then you start to see this additional new language in ours. By the time we were finished, it was in bold and underlined, and a bracket was next to it that said, not a precedent. Oh. And I I asked our agent, what did that mean? Because I didn't understand that part. And she said it means that they don't assume that the next client from the same agency gets to keep that language. Bookings yep, does a ton. They have really, really tight um, boilerplates. So when I got the contract, I think Bookins had a first crack at it, similar to Julia, and then they sent it to me. And unlike Julia, I didn't do anything further with it. But they just had loads of sections where they'd like crossed out stuff and then added in tons of paragraphs of their own. And I was grateful because it is a long contract, right? I mean, I think... Most authors are looking at trying to understand how am I going to get paid, right? Like how many installments, what does it take to earn out? Um, and then for me personally, I was very interested in, well, what would be deemed a competing work? And then how does the option work at the end, right? Um, I just wanted to know that it didn't limit my ability to write other things. Yeah, my, mine is really specific. Actually, it looks like Bookins did put in stuff where I'm allowed to write prequels or sequels or spinoffs um but you know with discussion but i can't begin work on a book project that would interfere with completing this contract which is really interesting i think that was the one that i brought up with my agent because it was like basically they don't want me to work on a sequel in it like not even work on it until this contract's it's really really unusual anyway um i don't know how much further i can keep in this but yeah 
look at this thing because looking at it stresses yeah, me out. Mine, mine has the same term, which is interesting because yeah. it's bolded, which I mm. took to mean it was my agent or agency is, yep. uh, that threw that in there. But it says author will not begin work on any project that will interfere with the completion of the work in accordance mm. with the terms of this agreement. Um, so it, it's got that, but it's also got uh, that ho the whole other paragraph that says, does not prohibit the author from writing and authorizing the publication, dis distribution, and sale of other fiction works with the same or different characters. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yeah, that, that's what's confusing me. It's like, I can't work on any other project that interferes with this, but I can have sequels, prequels, or spin-offs with the same characters and ideas, but I can't write something in the but same you, market. You can't start same. it. <laughs> so if it had already been started then you're fine you can you can continue writing anything that had already been started but no there new start i i mean and it is just a little bit nonsensical but it's unfortunate that there isn't more of an effort to make especially the non-compete section more cohesive and agree with itself, right? Because it causes a lot of authors stress. You know, in our Discord, there's been a lot of stress thrown around about, you know, can I do this other thing while I'm waiting for my, uh, you know, my publisher to get back to me with edits and I want to do this other thing, but I feel like I can't because I'm locked down by this non-compete. So yeah, that I would certainly encourage people signing contracts to do what you did, Julia, and take that section seriously in terms of redlining, asking for it to actually make sense uh, and be consistent with itself. I didn't know that it made sense after we were done, but I would say that for me, the discussion with my editor was really yeah. fruitful. And because um, you know, you have to remember, like, when people go into their careers, they love what they're doing and they love yeah. books, right? So it's weird to suddenly be on opposite ends of the table, like, advocating against each other. Like, the common goal should be, hey, we should make it so that you get to write stuff you love and we get to read and publish stuff that yeah. we love, right? So totally. I think with that, it, it should reduce the anxiety of the creative, right? Like, yeah. because the creator should be able to write whatever it's, it, the issue is publishing, right? You can work on whatever it is that I think um, makes sense for you timing wise, right? Like capacity wise. But I think the real question is like, who gets to publish this? Yeah. And, and I mean, it makes sense from their end too, right? Like they just want to make sure as best they can, that they're going to get the product that they're paying for, within a certain time frame, And that is extremely reasonable where I think maybe it makes sense for authors to look at protecting themselves also is in the event that the publisher is the cause that, you know, timelines are, are moved out and books are delayed. Cause I don't think my yes. contract has anything about that. I don't know of any authors that have any provisions for, um, you know, uh, whether it's compensation or, uh, you know, voiding of, of any other parts of the contract if the publisher pushes dates out. Right. Especially if you're getting paid on mm -hmm. those milestones, right? And they're pushing the milestones out. You yep. don't control that as, as the yep. uh, author. I think a lot of people do find it difficult to, when you've been querying a long time or you've been on submission a long time or submission more than once, It you know, you do see agents and publishers having that power and you know, when offers come in, like when you get a first get an agent and that table flips so quickly uh -huh. and suddenly like, you know, you're the person in power and the agent is kind of working for you. And that takes time to get used to. A, a lot of people are really timid with their agents when they first get one. And I think that, that happens to an even larger extent um, that most people are coming into publishing going, oh my God, an editor is speaking to me and they can't kind of it's really hard to get in the mindset of like, no, this is a business and I'm now an equal partner or should be kind of thing, equal partner in this relationship. But I would encourage authors to overcome that if they can, because you've got to start treating it like a business because the business will certainly treat you like it's a business. <laughs> so. Yeah. The common goal is like, hey, let's yes. make the best product we can make and get that into a reader's hands. Then you can feel like, hey, we're a team, right? Because I think the problem is if you aren't able to have communication with the 
editor or God forbid your own agent is ghosting you, then that's scary, Mm. right? That feels like, hey, we're not in it together. Yeah, so much of publishing is done on handshake. Like at agents used to be, you you didn't sign a contract, it was a handshake agreement. A lot of publishing stuff still works that way. Like I suspect that if I wanted to write something and I was worried about the the non-compete side, I would just have a conversation with my editor and say, is this okay? Because that's how publishing does things. But if your editor relationship isn't so good or so strong or you're for whatever reason you don't have an editor, maybe they left or something like that, then you can't do that. And then you that's when I guess the contract protects you. Um, did you have a sense for what you could change, like how much of the contract was negotiable and how much wasn't and what you could ask for? Or did you just try? Well, I mean, we got the first signal right away when we said, hey, can we get rid of uh, basket accounting? Right? <laughs> so that was like the number one thing for the agent. And, um, you know, that was the first thing where the editor was like, I'm really sorry, I cannot budge on this. This is coming down from the top was the sense I got, right? <laughs> Um, which is why I said, you know, I've never obviously worked in publishing, but I understand that internally they have to clear a lot of hurdles before they can acquire mm-hmm. a book. So they aren't the sole decision maker, right? Your editor, like they might be the taste maker in the sense that they love this thing and advocate for it with a number of people, but they're like money people, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And meetings, like they have to do all this work before they can say yes. So do you think that, if we had like some kind of standardized approach to it in the form of a union or guild that people were all in, that would be better. And I mean, I know unions aren't necessarily kind of your specialty area, but there's been a lot of discussion around it on social media. And I guess I was interested in your thoughts and how that can prove things, but also why we don't have unions if you felt like going over that because some people just won't know why we don't have one. Sure. Obviously I'm not a labor lawyer, but I did do a little bit of homework and ask around. And, you know, in the U.S., we have antitrust laws like the Sherman Act, and we have a National Labor Relations Board. So that governs whether or not you can have collective bargaining. And so um, right now it's on our minds so much because the WGA is on strike and we're hearing what's going on for them. And um, I think as authors, we're all pulling for them. We want there to be more fairness, right? And and how they're compensated. But when you look at them, when you look at the WGA, it looks very different than, than how we are organized because we are not organized at all. In fact, that would be like a violation of the antitrust laws. So I started digging around, like how, how can we as freelance uh, novelists mimic or benefit from what it is that um, these these folks at WGA are doing. Um, so the first is that uh, there is an Authors Guild, and the yeah. Authors Guild wants to um, make us exempt, right? So they are, I think, going to be lobbying for a statutory provision that allows us to do what WGA does, right? So that a guild could advocate for you and they're in w- without breaking the law, right? Yeah. So um, I wasn't aware of it until I joined the Authors Guild and until I talked to Michael Carabianco at SIFWA and he had a liaison at Authors Guild and I started looking into their objectives, right? They, they have a lot of lawyers um, and they, I think, are about what kind of things can move the needle short of a lawsuit or... Um, proposing a change to the law. And I think they've concluded maybe that's the best use of their advocacy, right? We we think about it, I think, a little differently. I know Sephora had like the Disney must pay movement where they were um, able to gain some momentum that might be beneficial to the authors who had not been paid, right? Um, for me, when I study WGA, the first question I have is why do they get healthcare, right? <laughs> Like here in the U.S., we don't have that. So I I was very curious about that. And apparently it's part of their minimum basic agreement. I think it's called the, let's see. Yeah, the minimum basic agreement. So they have, because they have a collective bargaining agreement, they have like, it almost looks like an employer-employee relationship much more, right? There's minimum hours that someone can work that entitles them to health care. We don't have that as novelists, right? And most of us are um, like me, where I'm still working a day job, right? And then this is um, 
something that, you know, is fitting in around the margins. And so there aren't minimum hours for us and we aren't exempt. So the first thing I did was join the Authors Guild, right? Because I thought, well, if my dues go to help pay for their lawyers to lobby to make it possible that we could have collective mm-hmm. bargaining, that is money well spent, yeah. in my view. So, so why can, I mean, basic level question, why can TV writers be in the WGA? Like, are they not freelance? Are they, are they employed and we're not? There's that minimum basic agreement, right? Which kind of governs how their contracts okay. look. Right. And so um, they're signatories. So uh, they're dealing with imagine that, you know, they have X thousand members on WGA West and WGA East. Right. There's one contract, though, with this uh, AMTPT, right, the the Alliance of um, Motion Pictures. So what they do is they agree in the contract who gets what and how people get paid and, you know, what the minimums are. We don't have anything like that, right? Everything on our end is very organic. It's if if Macmillan had 995 books come out in their spring catalog, then I have to imagine they had 995 contracts with 995 authors, which is kind of horrifying if yeah. you think about it, right? But I mean, can we have something like that? Because because effectively what's going on to the, the Writers Guild Association is like the, these companies are saying we need... 50 writers for this TV show, send them the way you would send 50 builders, like their, their labor as a force. But publishers can't exactly say to agencies, okay, we need 40 fantasy writers this season. <laughs> Just send some. <laughs> so I don't even know if it's possible for us to function like that. Yeah, I, I think that... Um when Authors Guild says, hey, let's see if we can even have collective bargaining, they're testing the waters to see if they can act like the WGA, right? And go to the five, the big five and say, these provisions need to be here. And like, we need you to sign off. We should have one collective bargaining agreement. And that's the minimum. Um, because I think it also relies on some very, very key personnel, right? Like you need to have more leverage. So if you're somebody who has a eight figure contract with publishing, you probably have much more bargaining power at the beginning, Mm. right? That's the other thing that's interesting about these contracts is um, WGA, DGA, uh, and SAG-AFTRA, all their renewals were this year, right? So their contracts expire, which means new negotiation needs to happen in order to renew these contracts. I am very interested to see how this goes moving forward. I do think we are weaker for being decentralized. So that's just my personal observation. I'm not, like I said, I'm not a labor lawyer. I just, I look at it now as like a creative, like, hey, how could we get these minimum provisions enforced even? I need to look into it in the UK side because we have a group called Society of Authors and I don't really know how that works in terms of guilds and unions, but I do know that they're sometimes effective. Um, So the Society of Authors, for example, was able to, I believe, I believe it was them, it might have been Authors Guild, I'm so sorry if I've gotten this wrong, pressure Amazon into um, changing the returns, the ebook returns, so that people can't read a whole ebook, return it and get a refund. So that was supposed to change, and that was that was due to them lobbying as a group. Yeah, I mean, I think the Authors Guild has something like thirteen thousand members, which isn't huge, but it's still a lot of people, right? That's a lot of dues, right? So if those dues are going towards um, advocacy or lobbying to advance causes for creatives, that's probably yeah. helpful. Yeah, yeah, it feels no like idea. we really don't have a lot of power. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I know that Twitter can be a scary place, but I think, yeah, Authors Guild had announced a bunch of things about um, AI provisions, and we necessarily all share the same opinions. I think the big question I had when I read those is, well, who am I to demand these things of the publisher, right? As it was, um, everything was a compromise that to arrive at the contract that we did arrive at. Right. So I, I was trying to picture in my mind, like, well, how would this negotiation goes? Right. Like um, you, you, you get your contract from whoever and then you say to them, well, I want these model provisions in here from Authors Guild. And 
they could say no. So then where are you? Right. Do you feel that being indie gave you a stronger, I guess, a, a different attitude towards negotiation? Because I think sometimes when we've talked about it in the past, I, get, I think like if, if the terms were really bad, you would walk away and be okay with it possibly. And that that's yeah. a different mindset. Whereas a lot of us who are, who are sort of trad only were kind of looking at it like, no, don't take my deal away from me. <laughs> so. Yeah. So Ken and I had the luxury of having a day job, right? So this deal wasn't to put food on our table. We were already um, financially secure, which I think that's fairly critical from a leverage perspective, right? Um, to feel like you could walk away. Um, as Indies, we were used to rolling up our sleeves and doing our own things anyway. And we had already bought three covers. It was just that when I said, hey, this is Asian female John Wick with dragon magic, people were like, you should pitch that, <laughs> right? There's like a broader market yeah. for that. Um, and so that was a... Um, that was for us a moment where we had to say, okay, under what circumstances would we walk away or under what circumstances would we say yes? And I said to Ken, well, I'm only going to say yes. If I feel like everyone loves this project. Okay. I I'm not going to say yes. If I felt like a tepid response, like to this project. Right. But when tour, um, when the preempt came in, they gave us like a three page single spaced marketing plan. And I said to Ken, I know none of this is enforceable and I know they don't have to mm -hmm. do any of this, but to me, it's a signal that they were really yeah. excited about the project and they will champion it. Um, um, similarly, when we met with our agent, I felt like she had the energy and enthusiasm to carry us forward, you know, for a whole career, not just for one project. So those things, I would say, yes, being an indie was helpful because I'm not afraid of the work. Like I'm happy to work hard and I had the money to back it because it's expensive. It is. I think that's one thing that you, you know, um, you and I have talked about before, but as an indie, you're paying for editing, you're paying for covers, you're paying for ads, you're running a small yes. business. Uh, I will admit, I get a little frustrated when, when folks tell me, no, it doesn't take any money to indie publish. It's like, maybe in the nineties, but it does kind of take it now if you want to see a sales return yeah. realistically, I think it's, there's so much competition and it's just. Visibility is going to remain the challenge yeah. for all of us, right? Like you, um, you make the best product you yes. can, you write the best book that you can, but you still have to get it in front of a reader, the right reader. Right. So what are some red flags that would have had you walking away from it aside from like the lack of, uh, like, I guess, contractual flags, aside from lack of enthusiasm. I kind of hate to say this, but realistically, if they didn't offer us enough money, I would have been like, this isn't worth it. No, that's that's fine. Don't hate to say. <laughs> I was going to ask if you had like a minimum in mind. I, I wish I had going in, but I was one of those that was just like, oh, I, you know, I don't need the money. I'm just uh, happy to have a chance in the industry. Uh, did you did you have a better sense for what kind of minimums you needed to see in terms of you know, money? I found out after the preempt came in that um, internally at the agency, they had kind of thought that this book was like a 25K book, right? So it was like three books, 25K each, 75K, and that if they could get the publisher to pay 35K for three books, it would fall into the six-figure category. So that was sort of the wish list from my agent, right? Like, hey, maybe we can do this. Scott's face. <laughs> what? It's weird to what? think about agents putting a value like that, isn't it? Yeah. What made your agency feel that way? You know, uh, were there certain themes or it, what, what made them feel like they could put a number to what they wanted to get for it? I don't know, but I saw, so in, before going out on submission, uh, they gave us a spreadsheet where they said, these are the editors and these are the publishers that we're going to talk to. And mm -hmm. these, these folks are specialty folks and these folks are, you know, a different kind of distribution. And so they kind of had groupings, right. Of, of where they felt the publishers were and how they paid. Right. So you could end up at a boutique where, they might give your book a lot of love and care and attention, mm -hmm. but maybe they wouldn't give you a big advance sure. for that, but you could still have a very positive experience as an author with them. So, you know, they, they, we had that candid conversation about those types of publishers and 
I assume that they're just looking at other deals that they've been doing for their clientele and kind of, you know, go, you know, saying, Hey, we think we can get this much for it. Honestly, it's, it seemed very mysterious to me. Um. <laughs> Sorry. Now I'm just wondering if my agency did that or that's an interesting question, isn't it? No, I mean, I think they have a very honed instinct, right? They've read so many Mm. books and and they've read so many opening chapters and they've read so many full manuscripts, right? I think for us, our agent told us that during her reading period, she had 864 queries and she asked for five full manuscripts and we were the only offer of representation for that reading period. So I don't know what it is they're looking for that I think they really do have intuition, right? Based on a lot of experience. Yeah. Well, I remember when we went out on sub that, you know, it was a very different submission strategy. I think Naomi felt like they had something because anchor, we kind of went out in smaller rounds, but book eaters was like a big shotgun blast. And I think I got the impression that was them trying to trigger an auction by getting everyone all on the same page at once but then you know in that shotgun blaster some smaller pubs it was almost like here let's try for that auction and then hedge our bets with (laughs) some mid-size and small presses in there as well the auction is the goal right i mean they don't assume that you're going to get a preempt they are hoping though that you're going to get multiple offers and and going back to you know your agent or agency having a a, a target if that was a function of looking at who they thought might be a good fit on the editor side and and who would be most likely to make an offer and their knowledge over time of of what kinds of offers you know those editors and those publishing houses were making that totally makes sense it is interesting though and i i, I feel like i i learned a lot way too late but understanding now what kinds of contracts other people are getting. And obviously, you know, we've, we've had this whole podcast that, that goes into this in depth, but what that means, man, I, I, I really wish there were a better process for aligning authors with agents, with publishers and really evaluating whether, you know, a, a manuscript that they were taking out to market fit the same expectations for, for each of those tiers, because I, I feel like a lot of the heartache that happens in this industry is because of misaligned expectations and uh, everything that follows after that. That I think is a very good point. Like I think one of the pieces of advice I got from Jonathan May very early on when querying was he said, Oh, you should get a, a, a subscription to publishers marketplace right you should look at what people are acquiring and i found out that that is something agents do all the time right that agents really are studying um, what publishers are are acquiring and it's weird they have that code of like a nice deal or a major deal or a significant deal but like those are dollars right it's a dollar range yeah Um, so they are trying to gauge like this type of book gets a deal for this dollar range if there's any advice there, it might be that when you're in the querying stage and looking at getting an agent to represent your work, that's probably the stage where I would start having that conversation of, I expect this to be a, you know, X dollar type uh, book, or it's not worth my time, right? And I don't know that that's industry standard to have those kinds of conversations that early. But Julia, it sounds like at least your agent had some idea pretty early on of what they felt your book could do and and you you did better than than they thought which is fantastic but at least you know you had some conversations and there was thought around it ahead of time i yeah if i could wish for anything it's that conversations about money not be weird like i feel like they should they should just be any other kind of um discussion right like what kind of money are we talking about should be a fair question um, and, and especially because like writing money is paid out in these really stretched out milestones. So just like normal people have to make budgets, right? So it makes sense to get an understanding of like, what is the a type of range of money I can look for? And off, oftentimes people are like me in their day job and they can't really quit their job. And that could even yeah. push out their publishing deadlines because you see 
very successful authors with um, New York Times bestselling and award-winning novels have to say, okay, well, I'm still working. It's taking me longer to deliver book two or three. Um, Or in some cases, I guess some countries have these wonderful grants, right, to to help make it possible, right, to keep writing and and finish your work um, on time for your publisher. Yeah. If you're in the UK, I'll just throw out to, to any listeners that we, we have a pretty robust grant system. It's not as good as it was before Brexit, but it's still there. Um, and I think there are two tiers to it. One tier goes up to 10K. I think one tier goes up to 30K. And then there's like lottery grants up to 100K. I don't know how hard they are to get. I've never succeeded in getting one. And to be honest, it takes so long to apply for that at this stage, I think I'm actually better off working on the novel. But yeah, there's that weirdness, isn't it? We're like, I think I'm probably going to miss the deadline that I need to hit for my book to come out in 2024 by about three weeks, just because I've not been able to get that done sooner and for the editing to come back and stuff. And that means, you know, for one to three weeks, my book will end up being in 2025, the next one, just my guess. Um, It's such a long lead up. I would say that coming from indie is almost shocking how much longer it takes um, to deliver a book, but the book itself is such a premium product that um, that was a really a pleasure to discover, right? Um, meaning if Ken and I finish a book and get it edited and get it uploaded, that's something that can happen within three months. Whereas uh, <laughs> for this contract was signed in 2021 and Ebony Gate comes out July of 2023. Um, and so that's a pretty long lead up, right? Two and a half years since it was written very long yeah i was i was gonna ask briefly i mean obviously if you've done indie books before you've got a sense of what sales good sales and bad sales are for you as an indie did you ever have a conversation um with an agent or editor about what good sales or bad sales looks like in trad no in fact i've been learning that from your <laughs> podcast like to me the, the lack of data right is really frustrating and so like discovering Edelweiss or, you know, just sort of talking to other authors and trying to understand like, what is normal? What is good? I I would say the one thing our editor said to us was that often um, before the hardcover of book two releases, they will release the paperback of book one and they see a nice uptick of sales and people entering the series at that time. So I suppose that that's fairly well known, right? It wasn't actual numbers, but that was probably the most sales oriented part of the discussion I ever had with my editor. I mean, just today, I mean, part of what I was thinking of it just today, an agent sibling was telling me a figure they'd heard from an agent is that kind of for our genre, 50k sales in the first year is really, really good, like freaking amazing. That's, that's what publishers are kind of happy with, I assume big five. And if you get like 100k in a year, then the book is kind of really taken off. And I don't know if that's just like an agent's opinion, if that's actually true. Um, we do occasionally get industry people who message us with corrections or or comments about stuff like that. So maybe one of them will chip in. But it's really hard to get a picture because everyone will just say, oh, yeah, we think that's good for that's about in line with what we were expecting. And it's, I feel like there should be a lot more variance in that somehow. Because something I don't think we've touched on before is like, technically, we are sci-fi and fantasy, right? Like, that's what we focus on. But one of the things I think about a lot is actually sci-fi is almost its own genre. Sci-fi gets a lot less sales, a lot lower advances compared to fantasy. It has a lot smaller readership. It's functionally niche, aside from a few breakout titles. But yeah, I think for fantasy, apparently 50k sales in a year is brilliant across all formats. I don't know. I can't verify that. I think it's um, good to me. <laughs> so hard to understand too, like the, the scale, because the book is so much more expensive, right? Like a hardcover yeah. is now like $30. And when you're an indie and you're selling your book for five or six bucks, it's just a real different sales proposition to the reader. Yeah, I know. I mean, so on that subject, Sunny, I know that uh, when my first royalty statement came in, and I, I still don't have my next one. Uh, I don't know if you've had yours, if you've seen yours nope. yet. Um, I've seen my sales figures, but not my royalties. <laughs> I yeah, I, no, I haven't seen either lately. I haven't asked though. Um, but anyway, when my first numbers came in, you know, they obviously weren't as high as I, I would like, but they were higher than I thought they would be. And my agent was quite pleased. And 
one of the comments he made was that he, and again, without giving uh, too much info because uh, he, he doesn't necessarily know that I'm broadcasting things on our podcast, but he had another client with another publisher who had similar numbers and that publisher was stoked about that, those numbers for a debut fantasy. Uh, at least I think it was fantasy. I can't remember. But, you know, with Tor, it was just like, oh, yeah, here's your numbers. <laughs> and, uh, we we're like, is that good? Uh, we, uh, I, I don't know. And I, well, obviously, it has... so positive. They're always like, oh, here's your numbers. It's all great. And it's like, is it great? Or are you just like being nice to me because you don't want me to have a breakdown? <laughs> <laughs> and it's relative as well, where I'm very aware that like, you know, the advance is high. So I need higher sales numbers. So yeah. to me, the numbers look good. But do they look good to the publisher? I don't know. I, yeah. I hope so. And I think they do because... Uh, I can't even remember what I've said and what I haven't now, but you know, on the American side, I'll know more when I get a royalty statement. But as far as I know, I, I got paid a small amount of royalties. I think that means book one earned out. And if so, that means it should be good, you know, but I'm not sure. <laughs> so, um, have we ever talked about the Mark Lawrence for formula on here? You know, I, know people I, know that. I didn't know it was his formula because I had I had been searching for is there a formula and I had come across various ways you could gauge how an older book had done right versus yeah. a newer book. And why don't you go ahead and talk about the Mark Lawrence formula? No, and it's it's fine. So Mark Lawrence is a is a bit of a mathematical person. Um, which means I'm in awe of him, like I am in, in, in awe of anyone who doesn't have to use their fingers to count like me. It worked out that like kind of for debut epic fantasy, you could look at their Goodreads rating and multiply it by about seven to get an idea of sales in, in like the first year or something. And then he revised that later on to say that, you know, it's probably closer to four to 4.5 depend because more people are on Goodreads now. And I think we kind of were using that informally before we had sales data in our Discord group to look at books. But it, it varies so much. Like some books yeah. are overrepresented on Goodreads, right? So my book is an example of a book that's overrepresented on Goodreads because it was in crates and stuff like that. And that readership is very online. They're very on websites. Um, whereas Scott's book is underrepresented on Goodreads. So the formula kind of works, but not really. It sort of works for me, but I'm overrepresented. It doesn't work for Scott because he's underrepresented. So yeah, there might be there might be like a threshold that you have to hit for it to even come close, right? Like once you get yeah. to X amount of you know five thousand reviews or something on Goodreads, then maybe there's some rule that holds. But it seems like before some certain threshold, it 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 doesn't seem the best we can helpful. say is it works for Mark Lawrence's books. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, and I agree with you that certain populations are more online than others, right? So even Goodreads, I think, post their own statistics of what they think their user age groups are. And I think it does skew yeah. kind of like 35 and under. Um, and if you can imagine that there are plenty of people reading but are not online, then yeah, they would not yeah. be um, adding a book on a bookshelf in Goodreads, right? Amazon is a slightly better metric, I think, that you do get you know, your ratings give some indication. And there's also the Amazon Author Central, but I don't know what that's like for indies, but for trad, Amazon Author Central is completely unreliable. I mean, when your book comes out, you can make an account and you can kind of see your book scan sales. But, you know, like for transparency, my Amazon Author Central says I've got 17K sales, right, on on there. And it's like, it's nowhere near, I'm between across both sides of the Atlantic between 60 and 80 somewhere on all formats, right? So it's not useful as a metric. And it's not even like you can multiply it by an X number to get your sales figure. It's like, for this person, it's 40% of the sales. And for that person, it's 80% of the sales. And it changes every week. And you don't know. Like, it's so inaccurate that it's useless. So there's so little data that's actually helpful. Well, it's really iffy because you, you, know, you just have to take whatever you're publisher says are your sales numbers as the truth there's no real way to to check that that i know of yeah and your editors don't necessarily know because it's yeah. not their department yeah. i don't know that they're tracking it i guess they get an update i'm not sure i don't know how much they pay attention frankly an industry person did say to me privately that they don't really get an update unless you trigger something like a bonus so they don't necessarily know. I mean, they can look at your sales figures, but that doesn't tell them whether you've earned out, for example, unless they're kind of doing lots of maths crunching. 
Yeah, and I think that's probably unique to each editor, the thing that they get very focused on, right? Um, yeah. Like what it and is. if you've got 15 clients, I mean, are you going to keep track of all their books that are... <laughs> yeah, and I, as far as I know, most or uh, maybe all editors, none of them have a direct incentive like an agent does to keep track of the performance of any given book, right? They're not paid based on how their books do. It's just a general, are you doing a good job or aren't you uh, kind of thing like most corporate jobs are, right? Um, very quickly, can I ask you a bit about co-writing? I might have yes. to edit that to slot it in somewhere else. <laughs> I uh, That was on my list to ask too. I've, I'm very curious about it. Feel free to explain your process. I know we've talked about it a bit, but just how it works for you and, and how you actually create a book and revise it and process things like editor notes when they come in. Yeah, you know, um, when I wrote uh, a novel solo for NaNoWriMo in 2016, I just used Scrivener. But when I write with Ken, we use Google Docs um, so that we can write at the same time. And people have always asked us like, oh, do you write like different POVs or different chapters? And the answer is no. We'll like write in the same paragraph sometimes. It's crazy. Um, as you're drafting? Yes, as we're drafting. Like we both will log in at the same time, like after dinner. And then you can just see that we're like our cursor is like, you know, where it is on the page. Crazy. Um, yeah. It is a, really unusual, but we have known each other a long time. And Ken told me like he went to uh, signing with uh, Neil Schusterman and Jared Schusterman. Um, middle grade, right? And they both also have co-writers. And so apparently they are the same as we are. Like they also don't have a really clear division of labor, right? As yeah. they're drafting, like they're they're drafting at the same time. They could also be working on the same scale. Okay. That's super cool. I like that yeah, a lot. The expanse, the expanse guys have like a really clear division of labor, don't they? They've got like the world builder and then the, the story guy. Um, you know, it makes sense. Like I love ideation and I, um, I'm kind of like the story structure person. Like I like the spine of the story and making sure each scene works and turns. Um, Ken is more prosy than I am. So like, if there is a nice sentence in the book, it's probably Ken's sentence. <laughs> what happens if you disagree? Um, it's stuck it's on pretty rare. It's only happened twice in oh. six years of recent co-writing. And so what we did, we had gotten to, I think, a part kind of in the last 25% of the book, and we had disagreed on the final um, battle scene. So I said, okay, why don't we just pause and write a prequel novella? So we stopped and we just wrote like 20,000 words of backstory. Uh, and then when we came back, we had no more disagreement. We were like all on the same page. <laughs> wow. yeah who won um i will just say that like it went as i anticipated <laughs> you know the, there are <laughs> there are two um prequel novellas so that shows you that sometimes maybe what when a thing isn't working and then we couldn't agree it's because we hadn't thought out something early in the character arc right so we needed that piece that's code for Ken needed some time to realize that you were right. You know, I refer to our Clifton strengths. Uh, I have as my number one in Clifton strengths, and Ken has Relator, which is probably the only reason we are able to like write to, um, together so peacefully is because Relators work well in small groups, right? Um, but I do like to forecast out where something is going. So, you know, that was probably already on the forefront of my mind. Yeah. I, what what I happens really when cool. editor letters come in? Oh, that's so much harder because of the way that the version control has to happen, right? Because now it's a Word doc with, mm. um, with comments and red lines. And so I, I took the first uh, stab at it. And I'm pretty sure my editor had never had anyone else give her a pivot table and a pie chart after. But I... Um, I grouped the con like I grouped all the editor comments. I said, "Well, these are about interiority. These are about plot. These are about timing." So you know, X percent of the comments are geared towards this. So this is what we're going to work on. Um, and and uh, I, I guess this is again like about me wanting to have data, right? So that that was the one thing that I could do. And um, Ken and I started using Dropbox 
So we would just text each other when we were going to be in the document, but we had a folder system. So we didn't work on the Microsoft Word file at the same time. It got even more complicated during the proof process when it was a PDF. Um, and I found that very difficult. I think that was probably the hardest part for me. That would be hard. I like the, I like the general idea of co-writing a whole lot, though, because I don't. You don't? Fuck on my novel. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I like it on a theoretical level because, yeah. you know, it, in theory, you have you have people with very strong strengths who might be good at, at one thing and and they might still be good at, at the other aspects of writing. But um, combining powers, you know, Captain Planet uh, style is really cool. But yeah, I, I think I, I suspect that what you found in a, a friend that is a good enough, close enough friend who, you know, shares a talent for writing and an interest in the same things. Uh, that seems rare, uh, very rare. And for a reason, I, I have a hard time imagining even my closest friends, uh, being at that same level, you know, uh, of, of interest, aligning interest, aligning, uh, times uh, uh will to put in the time uh will to put in the effort etc you know it, it's hard to really match all of that up and I, I do think ken and i got very lucky like i had him take the strengths test and so we had shared four out of the top 10 um so we did have a lot in common but also we're both turning 50 in a year and i think as you approach a certain stage in your life like your goals can align very clearly, right? We had done that thing where, at least for for me, my parents were like, you can be a doctor, lawyer, or engineer. So like, I felt like I'd already had my um, kind of career that was like respectable. And now I was going to do the thing that probably I um, had always wanted to do. And so I was running out of time yeah. was like my big concern. And uh, co-writing is faster. Yeah. And realistically, it's not just twice as fast, it's even faster because you don't have a writer's block, right? Like if I stop on a scene, Ken will be like, okay, I'm going to take it this way and he'll just finish it. Or if he stops on a scene, I'll just keep writing. And he'll say afterwards to me whether or not it um, comported with his idea of where the scene should go. So even if what I write is wrong in his mind, it helps him get to the finished product faster because he'll be like, no, it's not like that. And then he can delete it and keep writing, right? So it it means like you don't have long periods of time where you don't know where the story is going or you have to change something. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It, it seems like it would be very useful for maintaining momentum. I am curious to know whether you, it sounds like you're a, a data person, whether you track how much of your writing does get edited or deleted, et cetera, as you're going through that co-writing process. No, I mean, we, when we get into what we think is like the last half of the book, we'll start a spreadsheet just to log our words, yeah. like how many words that we're doing, but we don't track our revisions. Um, and we will revise each other continuously, right? Cause we'll rewrite the beginning of a scene or the beginning of a yep. book um, multiple times. And I think we've crossed a million words together. Cool. Um, recently. So it's worked. That's awesome. How do you know when a, a project is a solo project? Because I was talking a bit to Jen Dawson about this, because Jen's also a co-writer, but then the, the book she sold to Tor is a solo book that she's written. <laughs> um, you know, that's funny. I met uh, Emma Candon and, and she and um, I, I mean, I think they were also co-writing, you know, Emma and um, their spouse. But like what I failed to really think about was um, the overlap, right? Ken and I are writing fantasy because that's something we both really love and it's contemporary fantasy. And we wanted this like Asian element in our contemporary fantasy. But um, I think a solo product, a uh, solo project that makes sense is if we didn't share that interest. Yeah. So uh, Ken loves cyberpunk. I don't okay. really that much cyberpunk. Any that I've read has just been because Ken recommended it. Right. So I could see him thinking like, ah, this is this is the right thing for me. And he can you know, go off and uh, craft his, his cyberpunk project, for example. Um, if I were to write a legal thriller or a romance, I, I, I suspect Ken might not be on board for any of those types of projects. 
Oh my god, have you ever co-written a sex scene? Is that possible? Could you oh do my it? Gosh. The crazy thing is, so so Evan Gate has no um, sex in it, and it has no profanity. And I did that because I have kids that I know are going to read this book. <laughs> but what I found out was Ken's mom was reading our books, and I was like, oh thank god! How can I look his mom in the eye? <laughs> Oh. Do you think you could? Like, would you find it weird? Is that a, is that a personal question to ask? Because like you're both married to other people, and I don't know. I, it would just. Oh. Well, I tried to include one and one variation of of the beeline for the love interest, and we ended up cutting it from the book. But I think okay. I wrote it, so you okay. know, <laughs> realistically, I don't know how the revisions would have gone because we ended up not going that direction with um, the romantic interest, hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah, I don't know that I think like we once wrote a military sci-fi together and he wrote the steamy scene, not me. So, you know, you oh, just don't okay. know. Like, writers go where they want to go when they're drafting, right? I guess it's no different to like reading a book that your friend has written, which has like steamy scenes in it. And you just kind of like, it's writing, it's a book. <laughs> hopefully you're just judging judging them in your mind it's fine <laughs> oh really <laughs> i i'm trying to i don't know why to i'm trying to censor myself here but i'll i'll, it's I'll fine. not make i'll not make too many jokes s's first book s's first book had you know steamy her epic fantasy which is probably never going to see the light day. It had steamy scenes in it. It was fine. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Um, Shaylin desperately doesn't want me to read the romance for that reason, but I think it'll be fine. I'm going to read that and I'm going to live tweet it, I think. I'm going to read it out loud to my partner. You hear that, Shaylin? <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later. <laughs>